It's back for its fifth grade summer. Stowe Vibrancy's Art on Park Thursday evening series continues on Park Street this week with more than 30 artists and vendors, food, and music by Phineas Gage. Art on Park is a summer-long weekly festival of handcrafted products, specialty foods, and live music presented by many community-minded local businesses, Stowe Vibrancy and WDEV. Complete details available at StowVibrancy.com. Don't miss Art on Park, Thursday evenings from 530 to 830, Park Street, Stowe. It's time to get the story behind the story. Interviews with newsmakers, newsbreakers, and your phone calls. Radio Vermont presents The Mark Johnson Show. Thank you, Jim Condy. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Thanks for tuning in. Beautiful day out there today. Thanks for spending part of it with us. Coming up on the program in just a moment, we're all going to uh, become a little bit uh, better people, is what I think the goal of our first hour here this morning is. We're going to chat with our friend Arnie Kozak. Usually we talk with him about uh, all issues uh, introvert-related, but today we're going to switch topics and we're going to talk about Buddhism. If you have any questions or comments, you know you're welcome to join us on the program. Do I need to give you the phone numbers? Well, all right, I guess I will. 244-1777, that's our local number in central Vermont. And you can also reach us on our toll-free lines at 877-291-8255. We'll also check in with our White House crew to begin hour number two. And as I mentioned, we would love to hear from you this morning on the program. Let's give a nice warm radio from out. Welcome this morning to Arnie Kozak, the author of the Everything Essential Buddhism book, A Guide to the Fundamental Beliefs and Traditions of Buddhism, Past and Present. Thank you for joining us. How are you this morning? Uh, I'm great, Mark. It's good to be here. All right. So the first question is actually not coming from me, but it's coming from the collective here at uh, Radio Vermont. So is, is this Buddhism for dummies? You, you could say that. Uh, this book is actually an abridged version of an earlier book, the Everything, um, the Everything Buddhism book, second edition, which I wrote. And that is in a series that uh, has the dummies guides and the uh, idiots guides as their competitors. So it's, a, it's a, a light but comprehensive kind of encyclopedic treatment of uh, the topic all right you're you're a buddhist yourself well you know that's an interesting question okay. and it and uh, it okay it, it ties into the whole yeah person you know w how i view things personally and also into the whole issue of what is buddhism and you know what is this stuff that uh we're talking about here so uh technically i would say no i'm not a buddhist um if we insist on a label, maybe I would align myself with uh, secular Buddhism, which All is right. a, a, a variation. But, you know, it's interesting. So there was this man who was known as the Buddha from about 2,500 years ago. And he had um, uh, philosophies and really a, a psychology that he taught. And in the subsequent centuries, millennium, uh, religions uh, evolved from from those teachings, from those original teachings. So, if you go back to the Buddha, there is no religion. It's it's really it's really a self empowerment movement. It's really uh, uh, it's kind of like the uh, our version of what happened in the seventies <laughs> with uh, encounter groups and that sort of thing. Age of Aquarius. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, he was. 
you know, at the time uh, in the ancient world, um, you know, religions like uh, Hinduism, uh, Brahmanism were very prominent and, and other religions. And, you know, people had to go through priests to get to, uh, you know, the truth or salvation. And uh, we're always engaging priests for, for rites and rituals. And, and uh, you know, there was something outside of oneself that was, was sought. And the Buddha said, no, everything you do is within yourself, that we determine our experience. And basically, he was teaching people to be self-reliant and, and take responsibility for their, for their actions and not just their... Uh, external actions, but their internal action, what's going on in, in our minds, how we conduct our inner mental life, the thoughts and the, the emotions that we deal with make, can make a difference. Now, that seems pretty normal today, but in 2,500 years ago, it was a pretty radical mm -hmm. philosophy. And, and in this, at this time in the world, there were a number of other philosophical systems like the Stoics and Greece were, were emerging. But the Buddha also provided a method, a really a meditation method, for helping people to realize these, these insights that he had. So we have this, this uh, conflation, if you will, that Buddha and Buddhism. So all the Buddhist traditions, and there may have been many, many, there are many different traditions, pretty much in every different country that Buddhism has flourished, there's a different uh, religion religious system with its own beliefs and practices um, and those are all you know outlined in the in the book but um, and they all contain the the original teachings in mm -hmm. some form mm -hmm. but they've moved away from this set of secular teachings and they've become something something more okay so when you say you're a secular Buddhist what is, as opposed to what well as opposed to a Zen Buddhist or a Tibetan Buddhist or a Pure life Buddhists, or there's all kinds of of Buddhists, you know, kinds of systems. So these religious, so Buddhism spread from the Buddha was in northern India, and it spread to China, and and it went from China to Japan, it went to Tibet, it went all um, over the east, and every time it it moved to a different host country, it merged with the religions and cultures of that, and became something unique to that. Uh, to that host country. And it's interesting, as, as Buddhism has come to the West and to, to America, mm -hmm. uh, we see that we've, in some sense, imported the, the practices. Like, you can go to a Tibetan Buddhist temple or a Zen Buddhist temple. It looks just like it would in, in Japan or Tibet. Uh, and we haven't yet or we developed our own American-style Mm -hmm. of Buddhism or Western style of Buddhism. And, and that seems to be emerging as a secular uh, Buddhist uh, movement, movement or, okay. or, or philosophy. So, so going back to the original Buddha yeah. versus Buddhism, so the teachings of the Buddha, that philosophy and those methods taught in a secular way. And, and one of the, the biggest expressions of that is what John Kabat-Zinn has done in, in healthcare by teaching the mindfulness-based stress reduction, taking the method and the philosophy, but removing it from the Buddhist language and all of the other Eastern trappings and making it more accessible to, to a Western audience. 
We're talking with uh, Arnie Kozak. You can join us at 244-1777, toll-free 877-291-8255. Let's talk about the four core principles. What are they? Well, the original, um, the original teaching, uh, the Four Noble Truths, uh, that the Buddha the Buddha taught and a little bit of backstory. So, you know, we, historians think that he, there was an actual person, uh, Siddhartha, who became the Buddha, but we really don't know much about his his early life. But the, the like everything's from a poem. A few things that he mentioned, and it's it's been mythologized and um, you know yeah. and 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 made into a dramatic dramatic story. But the basic idea is. He was born into privilege and uh, had, a, had a life that was, um, you know, very, very fancy and, and, and sensual. He had everything he wanted. But despite this, he found that um, something was off. Something didn't, that there was a, a sense of something being off that life and not to mention that life contained all kinds of difficult things like sickness, old age, and death. So at some point, he left his privileged life and went off to seek some uh, method or some way of getting beyond this. It's usually called suffering. We'll just call it that for the moment. So he was looking for this, and he spent uh, many years studying with the yoga masters of the day, and he was, it was a meditation prodigy. Uh, from what we understand, but every time he mastered these systems, when he was in this high, in this meditative state, he felt felt good. But then we come back, and that sense of suffering was was still there. So he was seeking a way beyond that. And after six or seven years of of attempting it, uh, he had uh, a series of of insights. So uh, that's what we know as the the four noble truths what he the mm-hmm. uh, the the breakthrough that he had when he became um awakened and it's interesting that buddha itself is not i mean what is buddha buddha is merely means somebody who has awakened because buddho is the the pali term for awakened to wa- to awaken so it just means anybody who has waken up to these insights of the way things are could be a could be a Buddha, mm-hmm. and so these four four teachings. Uh, the first and they're, they're the four noble truths. So the first was the truth of dukkha. Now dukkha is an interesting word, and it, it's a Pali word, and uh, which was the, the the language of of his day, and doesn't really have an English. Direct English translation. Most people translate it as suffering, and that captures some aspect of it. Others translate it as stress, or anguish, or misery, or dissatisfaction. Uh, but the Buddha was actually a great uh, user of metaphors in a lot of his teachings. I mean, he had over a thousand different metaphors that he used when he and he taught for like forty-five years in his uh, career. So dukkha means broken wheel or bad wheel. So he says life is like riding on a cart with a broken wheel. Every moment you're on that cart, you feel that broken wheel, you know, the wheel is out of its axle, so it wobbles. And every moment of our existence is, is, a, is, a f- is affected by that sense of 
that thing that he was noticing when he was a kid that something is not quite right something is wow. off wow. so that's what an image yeah so that's that's w what we find ourselves in the situation we find ourselves in and if we slow down um, long enough and pay attention to our experience we'll notice that even when things are great there's that little tinge of worry well will it stay this way you know when am I gonna what's gonna happen next uh, when things aren't going well we're like oh god this is awful and you know why is this happening to me? So there's, you know, not just the big ticket items, again, of, of sickness, old age, and death, but just every day, every moment of our experience, there's this little tug, push and pull. Right. You know, we're, we're trying to push away the things we don't want. We're trying to hold on to the things that we do want. And it can be a very subtle process. I mean, obviously, sometimes, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious, but other times it's just there in the background. So that was the, the first insight. And the second insight I've already mentioned is, well, what, what's the cause of this? What gives rise to this sense that something is, is off? And it, that is, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a nutshell, is desire. We want things to be a certain way, and we become attached. Right. So it's a word we often hear associated with uh, Buddhist teachings. We become attached to them and misunderstood as well. Uh, we become attached with it. We need things to be a certain way in order for us to feel a sense that we're okay. Mm -hmm. So, and again, it's that constant pushing and pulling. And of course, we can't control much of what happens to us. You know, we can control our reactions to that. Right. But, and, and, but we can't, you know, obviously control other people, other people, circumstances, all sorts of things, mm -hmm. you know, medically and, and anything like that. So weather, yeah, yeah. So Buddhism. So that first noble truth has often been translated as "life is suffering," which sounds like a fairly pessimistic view. Let me sign and, up for this program. Yeah, yeah, and and it's really not. It's that's not the correct, even the correct phrasing. It's life, it's just the truth of suffering. Well, what is suffering? Is it here? Yeah, it's pretty, pretty omnipresent. And when we understand that there is this suffering here, and, or, or this dukkha, this stress, this something being off, and we understand what the causes of it are, and that those causes are largely self-manufactured. Right. That what we do with our mind, how we react to the circumstances of our lives, that pushing and pulling, if we can stop that, then there is a way beyond this. And that's what he experienced um, in his enlightenment and awakening experience. Okay. Let me just take a quick detour here because this whole idea about life as a series of suffering and an emotion too. But joy is somehow... You can't, uh, you can't even get something good out of joy because it, that thing you were just talking about, that everybody's all worried that it's not going to last. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the, it applies the same to positive emotions as well as negative emotions. I mean, it's, it's not don't enjoy yourself. It's not really a, a sense of don't, <clears throat> don't engage with things. It's that un understand that joy like everything, is temporary. It's passing. We're constantly in flux, and things are always changing, and we're always in transition. So enjoy it 
enjoy something while it's here, including our senses. So he went through, in his years after he left the, uh, the palace, he spent years depriving himself. He did these practices where they would you know, sleep outside and not eat and try to have the mind vanquish the body. And you realize that didn't work either. Wow. What a good way to learn that. So you, you go from, you know, he went from one extreme to the other. Uh-huh. In the indulgence of palace life to the denial of his ascetic practice life with these forest yogis. And then he realized, well, the, the best way is going to be through the middle. Not, neither, neither extreme. Okay. And uh, one of my favorite sayings is everything in moderation, right. including moderation, that we can't get attached to that either. Right? It's just we have to, uh, you know, use use our our wisdom and really deal with things on a on a case by case basis. Okay, I, we're going to get back to the other core principles here, but I got to ask you this question: as, as as you were describing this, so do you really believe that we can control our minds the same way we can control our bodies? <clears throat> yes, uh, with caveats. Right. So, I, I, I talk about this um, when I teach in, in terms of uh, what happens at time one and what happens at time two. Now, the way we learn as, as human beings, well, really just as, as, as all creatures learn, we learn from experiences and we become uh, conditioned by experiences that we have, you know, the things that you know, we like and the things that scare us and uh, hurt us. And so we, we learn and we, we become conditioned. And over a lifetime, we have a whole bunch of these conditioning. So when something happens, some, something that pushes our buttons or triggers us, that there's going to be an initial reaction at time one in the mind. Mm-hmm. And we can't really control that and neither do we really need to control that. But Usually what happens when something arises, like an emotion, a strong emotion at time one, we start running with it. And that cascades into thoughts and memories and anticipations. And we just start to get in, wrapped up into the story about, oh, you know, this is, this is awful. And you know, why is this happening to me? And I can't stand this. And Negative feedback. Yeah, right? we just kind of run away with that. And that just gives rise to more dukkha. And that's sometimes called the, uh, the two... The two arrows that life you know is going to hit us with arrows we can't live life is is full of all kinds of loss and trauma little little things and we can't control that but we don't have to compound that by self-inflicting that wound that's that's the big insight it's really good news bad news is we're a mess but the good news is we can do something so at time two we don't have to compound that we can Observe the the arising of that emotion as uh, something happening right now mm-hmm. in the body. There's a, there's you know emotions have energy and sensations in the body, and we can pay attention to that rather than oh my god, what does this mean to me, and how am I going to handle this? Mm-hmm. And that can help us to move through things um, much more gracefully. Mm-hmm. Why? Uh, so, for example, if you get angry, you keep your fist away. Is that a you know? obvious sort of dumb example is what, what you're talking about well <clears throat> we can think about uh different levels of of reaction 
So if, let's say, when you get triggered, typically you do get angry, you know, so the angry emotion arises and you lash out, you yell, you break things, you maybe hit people, you know, there's, there's behavioral consequences of that action. Uh. So that, and again, in Buddhist terms, that would generate a lot of karma, which simply means action. Right. And okay. actions have consequences. So with the insights and the meditation practice, when you notice, oh, here's anger arising, you can observe that and maybe then you contain that behavior. You don't act it out. You mm -hmm. don't cause those external consequences. Now, there still may be a lot of internal pressure and um, uh, suffering from that, from that anger. You know, you're boiling inside. Uh, but over time, with practice, you can <clears throat> learn to contain that and work with that so that, so that the anger doesn't become uh, consuming and, and overwhelming. Okay. Why would I want to become your friend if everything's temporary and I'm just going to wind up losing you as a friend? Well, <clears throat> could you pause a little longer on the answer on that? Come on. <laughs> well, it's a great, it's a deep question and it gets right to the heart of the matter. Why do we do anything? I mean, this life is, is temporary and the universe is temporary. You know, they... I was just listening to the the news the other day, and they they've scientists have confirmed that the universe is decaying and will eventually just blink out. I mean, it's billions of years from now, but eventually it will. So everything is is temporary on some scale, and the 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 answer to that is well, to be in the moment. Now, we can have a a, a friendship and be together. In the moment, and part of that moment is knowing that we the the tr the loss the grief is already there. Sometimes I tell my I pay my patients something. You know, grief is the admission price to the present moment. That's that's the cost of the ticket. That we have to be open to grief, knowing that everything we love is 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 temporary and, and transient. And we, we see that a lot with with uh, dogs. And I've done some thinking and writing about this. And, you know, our dogs, since they live a shortened lifespan, uh, can teach us uh, a lot about um, grief and being in the in the present. So we've already lost everything. There's a, a teacher, <coughs> uh, uh, Ajahn Chah. I think there's a quote somewhere, but you know, he he picks up a cup, a glass, and to his students, and um, he was a Thai teacher and. He says, you know, this, I love this glass. I mean, it's my favorite glass. I like the way it reflects the light and holds the water, and I like the shape of it. And he's like, it's already broken. I'm going to knock it over when I'm, my, you know, not paying attention one day. It's just going gonna, gonna to fall. It's going to decay. Um, but knowing that, I really can appreciate it as it is. Huh. So knowing that we are transient and, and temporary and, and impermanent, then I can really enjoy it our friendship that's a good answer we're going to take a quick break by the way that, that's a Dixie cup <laughs> we'll be back continue our discussion Arnie Kozak is the author of the Everything Essential Buddhism book you're welcome to join us 244-1777 toll free 877-291-8255 back after this $3,000 that's the minimum your trade is worth during cash for junkers no matter what it is or how little you might think it's worth hi this is Steve Sace from the new McMahon Chevy Buick in Mooresville and I'm Ed Dever sales manager at McMahon during cash for junkers if your trade rolls floats or flies and has a VIN number 
You get a guaranteed minimum trade allowance of $3,000 toward any used vehicle we have in stock. We take almost anything on trade. Cars, 4x4s, boats, tool sheds. Come on, man. Tool sheds don't roll, float, or fly. But we'll take just about anything else. With Cash for Junkers, you'll get a trade allowance of at least $3,000 towards any used car, truck, and our two lots. And if your trade's worth more, you'll get more. Come see us today or check our used inventory out online at McMahonChevrolet.com. The new McMahon and McMahon's Import Corner, where we always have a great selection of late model imports. At the corner of Route 15 and Route 100 in Mooresville, now is the time to get out of that old beater and into something more reliable. Cash for Junkers, only at McMahon and McMahon's Import Corner. We make deals the other guys won't. Chevy, find new road. It's no secret Mihiran Supermarket is a great place to shop. I'm Tom Mihiran. For over seven decades, Mihiran has been catering to the needs of the Mad River Valley and beyond. We have custom-cut meats, fresh produce and seafood, regular and organic grocery, locally produced foods galore topped off by an extraordinary wine and beer department and a state liquor agency. Shop me here in Supermarket, Village Square Shopping Center, Waitsfield. Who's next? Uh, I am. Wow, that's a great price on the lobster. The lowest we've seen in years. I'll have two pounds, and can you lock that price in for me? Uh, I can't do that. Why not? Because, you know, the price of lobster goes up a lot. Packard Fuels does it. Packard Fuels sells inexpensive lobster? No, heating oil prices are at their lowest in six years, and they'll lock in that price for you so there's no unexpected hikes, and they'll spread your payments out over the year. Now, I'm pretty sure we can't do that with the seafood. But it seems like such a reasonable way to do things, you know, now that I'm a Packard Fuels customer. Alas. Hey, boss, can we lock in the price on lobster? Is that another Packard Fuels customer? It does sound really reasonable. We don't do that with seafood. Packard Fuels is a family-owned business with 24-hour service and delivery of ultra-low sulfur heating fuel, as well as diesel delivery. Now's the time to lock in low heating oil prices with a smart Packard pay plan. Call 262-FUEL or visit PackardFuels.com. That's 262-FUEL or PackardFuels.com. The Spruce Peak Performing Arts Center in Stowe presents the undisputed king and queen of Scottish music, Alastair Frazier and Natalie Haas. This Saturday, August 22nd, she's a vibrant young cellist. He's the Michael Jordan of Scottish fiddling. Together, they transport you from ancient Celtic tunes to contemporary reels faster than your feet can tap. Aldous Dare Frazier and Natalie Haas in Stowe, August 22nd. For tickets, visit sprucepeakarts.org. We're back uh, continuing our discussion with uh, uh, the author of the Everything Essential Buddhism book, Arnie Kozak, who's, I'm, I'm already grieving, you're gone. It's already 10 o'clock and you're gone. <laughs> Let's uh, take a call from South Carolina. Whit, good morning. How's it going? Yeah, good morning, Mark, and good uh, morning to your guest. Uh, I am a, a Buddhist, at least by philosophy, and uh, I wanted to tell you something that was really amazing, because we could discuss the abstract. Buddhist philosophy, of which uh, I think your guest is already doing a fantastic job at. But when I moved to South Carolina, I was in a Walmart looking for TVs, different TVs that I might want, especially when they went from the digital, the analog to the digital TV. And I just looked a little bit to my right, and I saw a Buddhist monk in red robes. And this is like something out of the National Geographic. What, what can I say? And he's not staring at me, just sort of staring uh, directly where I'm staring. So uh, I greeted him, and uh, uh, he greeted me back. I, he said something. 
Uh, I didn't recognize it in English. Uh, in any event, uh, the next thing I said was, you are better than me, or something like this, because what I was implying was he obviously is a Buddhist monk. He must be a better Buddhist than I could ever hope to be. And he didn't really frown, but he looked at me in this very perplexed way as if, what are you talking about? Uh, and then I realized how foolish I was by making a comment like that, even if in English he didn't quite understand what I said, but I got the feeling he understood what I meant. So then I took my hands and I clasped them in a peaceful type way, and I sort of almost semi-bowed to him, and a smile came over his face, and he bowed back to me. And I'll never forget that experience, and it's a true experience that I had here at Walmart, of all places. So I just thought I'd wow. do that. All right. Okay. <laughs> miracles can happen at Walmart. Yeah. Wow. Well, did he buy the TV? That's what I want to know. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, it's interesting. I think in the West, in America especially, we tend to look at things in terms of good, better, and best, and, and make those sorts of comparisons. And I, I think the monk probably would have pointed out that we all have um, what's known as Buddha nature. Right? Remember, just Buddha is just the, our capacity to awaken, to be fully present to what's going on. And we all have that equally. And, you know, in the Buddha's day, he said, you know... It, it was a very elitist, the religious establishments were very elitist and the caste system, and he was saying anybody, even the lower caste, everybody has this um, uh, capacity for for Buddha nature. And, um, you know, rather than getting into better and best, which sounds kind of judge judgmental, it's, uh, I, I prefer to look at things in terms of, of skillful and unskillful, that sometimes, you know, what we do how we conduct ourselves is, is skillful because it leads to good results for ourselves and other people and the world around us and other times not so skillful. So we want to keep doing, try to keep the ratio of skillful to unskillful in a, in, a, mm -hmm. in a good way and try to improve on that. But in that sort of sidesteps, you know, I'm a bad Buddhist, I'm a good Buddhist. And if, you're, if you think you're a good Buddhist, <laughs> if you think you're uh, a good meditator, that you are kind of missing the point of... Mm -hmm. what we're trying to, to do is which is not to identify with what we're doing and not to make it the basis of of uh, of how we are why does it take work why is it sort of going against gravity to be in the moment to think in the moment mm -hmm. uh, well there's probably a evolutionary reason for that yeah um, remembering <laughs> the, the bear that chased you before yeah, I mean, there are, our brain is, is wired up the way it is in order to help us to survive, not really to make us happy. So happiness is a really a relatively recent human invention, which is not in sync with, with evolution at all. Good point, yeah. And, um, Don't need it for survival, necessarily. Well, we need you know, uh, pleasure. You know, pleasure helps us to reproduce and to eat and survive. But um, this project of, of happiness is, is, again, you know, maybe 2,500 years old or so. And, of course, it's a privilege for us to do that. And civilization and other things allow us to pursue the question of happiness. I didn't realize it was that new, huh? Uh, I think so. I mean, 
you know, and not that happiness wasn't experienced by people before then, but the, the explicit pursuit of happiness, I think, has been, well, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to pin it to that. Got but it. let's say 5,000 years <laughs> or so, you know, in terms of civilization. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, so, yeah, that's... And so we have to transcend a lot of things that mm -hmm. are, are part of our biological package in order to well just to be civilized and to transcend some of our some of our tendencies and so effort really is a part of it and just to go back to the four noble truths so we talked about the truth of that something is off what causes it the third truth is just we can stop doing this to ourselves and we can get to a place where we're not pushing and pulling and and then the fourth truth is is the path is a collection of of insights and um, behaviors, ethical guidelines, and 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 methods, meditation that you can do to help you to be more skillful. Okay, let's we'll get to those in a minute or two. Here, let's go to Bethel. Hi, Davis. Good morning. Uh, good morning, Mark, and good morning to your guest. I've always thought of the happiness concept as a sort of akin to privacy. There are things that we take for granted now as being sort of a natural state, but privacy and happiness historically haven't always been around, so to speak. But I would like your guest to speak. Uh, a couple of days ago, I had called Mark, and I made the offhanded comment that I had not uh, felt guilt since I'd reached the sort of the, yeah. the wow. age of reason, yeah, so incredible. to speak. And Mark was taken by surprise yeah. by that I could make such a quote, not, not hit my word, not his outrageous comment. But I wish, uh, could your guests please speak about the concept of guilt and the Buddhism and how it is that someone who, like with, I am just a, a philosophical student of Buddhism, but how I, I, I feel comfortable making such a statement. Yeah. Could your guests please speak about guilt? Thank, thank you. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, well, yeah, there's really not a lot about guilt that I've, I've come across. And so there is no concept analogous to original sin uh, in or if there is, it's it's almost the opposite. That when we can basically hack into our own minds and and understand the way it works and change the patterns that that we're engaged in, what's revealed is is really quite wonderful. So our essential nature, if you want to call it that, is goodness. Is um, is uh, well. Going back to the third noble truth, it's the truth of uh, of nibbana in Pali or nirvana in Sanskrit. Another one of these very you know popular popularized um, Buddhist notions. And nirvana simply means is also another metaphor. It means to go out like a candle or a fire. If you have this fire that's burning from all the fuel of of desire and pushing and pulling and anger and all of that. <clears throat> Uh, and you stop putting fuel on that fire, the fire will eventually go out, and then we'll be in this place of cessation, this place, you know, thing, this concept called nirvana. And it's beyond our your typical conceptions of mind because we're just not engaged in the internal storytelling and the identification and the things that we typically do with our minds. So if you're in that place, yeah, I don't think you would feel much guilt. I mean, guilt mm -hmm. is a construct a construction which requires an agent. I did this, and I feel bad about this. Um, 
Which is not to say that you wouldn't have a sense of conscience if you engaged in something unskillful. Let's say you misspoke right. or you forgot something or did something that, that resulted in some harm to somebody. Right. You know, you would be aware of that and you would be motivated to redress that. But the guilt, you might see that as super, superfluous. Like, why do I need to beat myself up in addition to just trying to remediate the action? Well, maybe it's part of forgiving yourself. Maybe it's part of the whole process. Well, I, I would think that the guilt could actually get in the way of forgiving ourselves. You know, we can't let it go. We're, you know, instead of just dealing with the issue at hand. Okay, but if I do something terrible to you, and I just say, oh, okay, I just did something terrible to you, and I'm not going to feel badly about it. I mean, come on. Well, <clears throat> again, you want to use the awareness and the feeling that arises as a motivator, as a motivator to re redress the problem, to whatever that looks like, to apologize or to fix the problem or to do something. So if we're just in that mode, we're just, we're almost pure action. The, the sense of guilt, oh, you know, I'm just a bad person and I feel horrible and all of that is just extraneous. It doesn't really help me to help you fix mm -hmm. the problem. Mm, okay. You right. know, it just is more, just more glorification of self, in a, in a sense. All right, so you say I'm being selfish for, for doing that, for feeling badly that I, you know, like called you a name or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's about how, what is my self-image, in some sense. All right. Let's go to Washington. Hi, Andrew. Good morning. You're on the air with Ernie Kozak, the author of the Everything Essential Buddhism book. Yeah, good morning, guys. Uh, Mark, you actually just brought up part of, of my question, and that's if, Mark, if you again did something negative to, to your guest and your guest taking the Buddhist mentality of, well, this moment is fleeting, the situation is fleeting. Mark, I don't Mark, really is, have, Mark is fleeting. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't really have to, to, to focus too much attention on that. If an individual who's trying to follow the Buddhist philosophy, maybe not to the T, can't that lead to them either being taken advantage of, losing their competitive edge, hearing apathetic? Right. Uh, and that's a great, a great question because I think it, it speaks to the, one of the big misunderstandings about what <clears throat> uh, non-attachment or... Um, what equanimity actually mean. So let's say, you know, just say Mark does something to harm me. Now, my your initial... Bo your book's terrible. Yeah. So, <laughs> so my initial right. reaction is to defend myself against that, to, you know, identify with that, with that injury. Um, and to, you know, in addition to whatever harm is caused, uh, now I'm generating this... You know, story of, of anger, indignation, and, and so forth. Um, if I try to do it the Buddhist way with equanimity, I'm noticing what's arising in the moment. And I notice, okay, I notice this situation has occurred. This situation may have consequences down the road, which I'll need to, to deal with. Um, but there's nothing in this that says I can't. Uh, redress the action. It's to say, oh, please stop. 
you know, if you're standing on my foot, I'm not going to say, oh, I'm just going to transcend this. I'm going to say, you know, are you, you know, maybe I'll do it nicely. I'll say, are you aware that you're standing on my foot and would you please stop? And so we can take that trivial example and, and scale it up to any sort of, of, of insult or injury or harmfulness or abuse. So there's okay, nothing but about... Let, but let's get this back to me because, you know, I mean, pretty much it is about me. But it's the guilt that I'm feeling having issued that insult to you. So you're saying it's a waste of time for me to feel guilt. It doesn't help you in any way. But... Uh, you know, on the other hand, if I'm able to just insult you and then just say, oh, well, okay, I insulted you and not feel anything about it, what's the value of any apology or any feeling I would have yeah. on that level? Well, again, the, the idea is not for you to not feel anything. I mean, in the moment, we, I mean, emotions serve a purpose, um, biologically, psychologically, and usually there's information Thank, thank in you, them. Andrew. There's information in them. So, in guilt, it has, has a purpose to bring, make you aware that some sort of social rift has occurred. For a short time. Yeah. And so, that it's, serves its purpose by orienting you to uh, a situation that has arisen. And once it's done that, once it's served its function, then it doesn't really, um, there's not much to be gained by perseverating on it, ruminating on it, and then making this case against yourself okay. for having done it. But the action, it, has to, and it does have to motivate the action and inspire a sense that, okay, I want to learn from this and do better next time so Got that it. I don't repeat this. Okay. You know, All right. So, okay. it, you're not off the hook. All right. <laughs> your, your book is skillful. Let's put it that way. We'll take a short break. We'll come back, continue our discussion. You can join us. Feel free to call us, 244-1777, toll-free 877-291-8255. Ernie Kozak lives up in Burlington. He's the author of the Essential, uh, the Everything Essential Buddhism book. We'll be back after this. It's really heating up out there, and so are the deals at Mid-State Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram during the summer clearance event. With Chrysler giving us extra incentives on select models, we can offer some terrific deals, like a brand new Chrysler 200, a loaded mid-size sedan with $3,500 off and 0% financing for 72 months. Now that's a great deal. Looking for a Jeep? The all-new Jeep Renegades are here, and we have brand new 2015 Jeep Patriot 4x4 starting at just $17,821. Ram truck leases are ridiculously low, and so are leases on Jeeps. Don't delay. Inventory is good, but these deals are hot, and they will go fast. Mid-State Jeep, halfway between Barrie and Montpelier on Route 302. Tired of grocery shopping at huge supermarkets with no personality? This is Tom Mihiran, and I invite you to shop our well-stocked, right-sized family market in Waitsfield. Custom-cut meats, fresh seafood and produce, gourmet cheeses, regular and organic groceries, and over a thousand wines. Come and see Jeff and Bill in the meat department, Tana and Produce, Gary and Seafood, Nate in the deli, or Nancy and Liz in our incredible wine department. Family run for over 70 years. Mihiran Supermarket, Village Square Shopping Center in Waitsfield. 
special announcement. Wendell's Furniture is Vermont's largest furniture store, so we're having Vermont's largest furniture sale. It's a $4 million inventory reduction event. We recently underwent major renovations and acquired a surplus of unsold top quality inventory. We must make room immediately. $4 million worth of brand name home furnishings and handmade oriental rugs have been drastically discounted for immediate sales store-wide. Everything must go. Up to 60% off top quality home furnishings. Up to 70% off handmade oriental rugs. Now is the time to buy living rooms, bedrooms, dining rooms, dinettes, sectionals, recliners, TV stands, mattresses, rugs, accessories, and more are all reduced for quick sale. Nothing held back. It's a complete wall-to-wall sell-off. Hi, folks. It's Wendell. Don't miss this incredible opportunity to own the furniture you've always wanted during our massive inventory reduction event going on now at Wendell's Furniture in Colchester and at the Vermont Bed Store, 4050 Williston Road, South Burlington. Get details at wendellsfurniture.com. Back continuing our discussion, we've been talking this morning about Buddhism with Arnie Kozak. You can join us at 244-1777, toll-free 877-291-8255. Let's talk about death here for a moment. So we're, we're not supposed to fear death. We're supposed to actually be practicing every day the idea of sort of the way, maybe I'm oversimplifying it, to get sort of comfortable with the idea of death. That doesn't, I don't know. Again, it doesn't sound like the way I really want to spend today, but, but uh, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm misaligned here, Arnie. Right. Well, this could easily become a kind of a morbid preoccupation, and I don't think that's the point. I mean, it's like the, we were talking about with the, with the, with the cup, with the, cup the glass, that already everything bro- already is... Already broken. Yeah, it's, everything is impermanent, including ourselves. Yeah. And... We live in this kind of bubble of uh, of immunity or of um, thinking that uh, uh, entitlement, really, that somehow we've been guaranteed that life is, you know, we're going to have a long, full life with no losses. And, and when things happen, um, we can sometimes be very jarred by that experience. So we ought not to be surprised because there is no guarantee. And while we can look probabilistically or statistically at okay i'm going to live for so long but we never really know when illness will strike ourselves or a family member or an accident will strike somebody or you know some natural disaster will occur so it's only an illusion to think that death is somehow not part of the conversation it's it's here but again knowing that death is you know um uh, standing over your left shoulder as it were helps to make us more fully alive. Now, when I ride my motorcycle, which I did here to the studio today, that brings the, the whole <laughs> idea of, of death and impermanence to in a very pointed way because, yeah. you know, and yeah. if I don't pay attention or, you know, something could happen, I'm, right. I'm much more vulnerable. But that vulnerability exists in every moment. And so the idea, and there are death meditations that some Buddhists... Um, practice you know to really just not become too enamored with too attached again to to ourselves but but that's the essential idea <clears throat> that um you know whether whether we want it or not that's that's the reality of the situation but there's nothing morbid about it it actually helps free us up to enjoy ourselves and to be more engaged and be more present knowing that it is you know, if you if we knew that we we're going to live forever, I, we'd be rather 
complacent and probably bored a lot of the time. It's, well, you'd have a lot to worry about, too. You know, how am I going to pay for, I mean, all that stuff. But, it, you know, wallowing that. Yeah, so it, it, that's, that's... So it's supposed to make you more acutely aware of every day. Right, yeah. Now, that, that is, the, that is the, the lesson there. Now, you know, going back to the whole question of Buddha versus Buddhism, and a lot of Buddhists believe in rebirth, that, you know, this is not the end of the... You know, that we go through continuous cycles of existence. And some, um, like Tibetan Buddhism, you know, that's a very prominent feature of that practice and that set of beliefs. In a secular Buddhist what perspective, you would not necessarily engage with those sorts of beliefs. You know, we don't know what happens mm-hmm. after death. Um, but but still, that, that sense of... Um, you know, death being always um, potential helps to wake us up to, to now. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about, we were just chatting about this during the break, the Western image of a relationship, I guess marital we were talking about, and what the, what the sort of the Buddha philosophy is or what you talk about in some of your books. Well, I think that there is no one Buddhist philosophy. You know, there have been different traditions that have different... Um, different takes on it and if you look at the life of the buddha he actually abandoned his wife and newborn son i mean if the, according to the legend the night his son was born and he fulfilled his his duties to have a an heir he left and uh he had a collection of uh he had a monastic a celibate monastic following so he probably wasn't the best guy to get a relationship advice from. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, and there's some interesting... Talk about non-attachment. Yeah, well, and he, his mother died in childbirth, or recent, just shortly after childbirth. He was raised by his aunt, and some psychoanalysts think that might have left some some psychological scars Jeez, on him. And, and yeah. he was, uh, you know, maybe we, 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 in psychology we would call an avoidant um, attachment style. So, uh, and not to mention he was a deadbeat dad, you know. Right. I mean, the kid was well provided for, but <clears throat> uh, he, he... So his idea of r- relationships uh, is fine if you want to enter into a, a monastic um, setting, but for everyday life, it, it's, it's not very uh, feasible or practical. So the the... Same general principle will apply to everything, whether it's um, you know uh, material things or relational things. That it's not saying don't become attached, and we we have also a dual meaning of attachment here, of the word attachment. So we have the psych- psycholo- psychological notion of attachment, which you know mothers attached to their infants, infants attached to their mothers and caretakers and fathers and we attach to each other. That's a that's a biological, psychological process. And then there's this Buddhist notion of attachment, which gets confused and can yeah. get confused right there. So don't have relationships to avoid attachment. And that's right. just again, it's not practical. It's not the way we're we're built. But the 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 invitation here is to. Again, be present in that relationship, but to understand the limitations of that relationship, 
that this relationship is also is is transient. Um, that to the extent that we I build the my identity and sense of okayness on the relationship is to the extent that I will have dukkha. Well, I, I will suffer. To the extent that I don't, then I'm free to enjoy that relationship. So it's all about how we deal with the things that are in front of us. And we can always do that in an attached way or in a way that's, that's non-attached. So there's really, you know, you can have material things, fancy things, or you can have relationships, but they have to know that really I can't, I can't own this. And that's, that's another way of thinking about attachment. It's a sense of personal ownership of something, whether mm-hmm. it's a thought or a relationship or a thing. And because I own this, I'm okay. And as soon as we do that, then there's all sorts of ways that this could go wrong. And now I have to defend myself against, well, I could lose this. And then, then where am I? That's what we want to try to avoid. And we can still be fully present and love and grieve but there's no sense that i need to own this there's no ownership it's just it's a flow from moment to moment and it doesn't mean you care less well in some sense it means maybe you care more because you're not wrapped up in your own stories about oh i need this and i what does what does this mean for me you're actually more open more compassionate because you're more attending to what's actually there with the other with the other person so that's um when we give up our attachments i have a a saying you know we become um we become uh you know human beings or becomings we're we're in the process of, of becoming and we're motivated by uh, things that interest us, things that we generate a sense of care for, and things that bring us joy. We, we can still have, we still have a personality. We still have preferences and all sorts of things. If we engage with this philosophy, we just we just don't have to own them. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks for coming down and uh, uh, safe travels on the way back. You got me a little worried with your last discussion of <laughs> the road there. It's all uh, impermanent, but uh, and I'm uh, yeah, honored let, to be let, one let, of your your last guests. Well, yeah, I mean, proving that everything's not permanent, right? Yeah. <laughs> but so we want to keep your impermanence here going as long as we, we possibly can. Yeah, so, so, so do I. Back today. <laughs> so do I. Uh, is there a way people can contact you if they want to reach you? Yeah, they can uh, always go to my website, arniekozak.com. Uh, and you can email me, arniekozak at gmail.com. Uh, my book is available in wherever books are sold. And I also have another book coming out, uh, Mindfulness A to Z, 108 Insights for Awakening Now, which will be out later in September. And you're leaving that for me, right? Yes, you are. <laughs> okay. That's going to wrap things up for our number one. Thanks for coming down here. I appreciate it. That's Arnie Kozak, the author of the Everything Essential Buddhism book, This is FM 96.1 WDEV Warren, broadcasting from the top of Sugarbush. FM 96.5 in Berry and Montpelier, 101.9 in the Kingdom, and AM 550 WDEV. Waterbury, Montpelier, news is coming your way next.